This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Dr. William Marty Martin. Dr. Martin is a director and professor of the Health Sector Management MBA program at DePaul University in Chicago. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist with a master's in behavioral sleep medicine, a former fellow at the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and a certified mindfulness coach, a man with many hats. Dr. Martin is also the author of a new book, Conquer Needle Phobia, Simple Ways to Reduce Your Anxiety and Fear. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thank you. I'm certainly glad to be here. Now, as I mentioned above, you, you do wear a lot of hats. Um, how? Uh, tell me a little bit about how you've gone from public health to sleep to mindfulness and now to, to needle phobia. Yeah, it's um, kind of an interesting story. So when I was in my doctoral program at Rutgers in New Jersey, we had a dean at the time who said he wanted to prepare psychologists for the future. So he strongly encouraged us to get a you know, doctoral degree in psychology, but complement it with another degree. So I complemented it with a master's in public health. So I've always kind of been involved in both working with individuals, but also looking at why do individuals wind up having to see a therapist from the beginning? In a lot of cases, it's due to you know, structural issues in society, policies and systems. Uh, those are the reasons why people often seek mental health. So I wanted to be able to combine the two, and I've been fortunate enough to do that throughout my career. So it's a nice weave. In your book, uh, you mentioned that 30% of the world's population have a fear of needles and injections, and 3% have what is considered a full-on phobia. What's the difference between a fear and a phobia? Yep, so that's a great question. So uh, let me begin with phobias, then I'll get to fears. So phobias fall under an anxiety disorder. And an anxiety disorder, as most people know, is there's this anticipation with some uncomfortable feelings about something that's going to happen in the future that's unpleasant, not desired. So that's what an anxiety is. So with phobia, it is an intense anxiety, and then it also has a unique characteristic. And the unique characteristic is avoidance. So for people that are phobic, their anxiety is so high and so intense that they will actually avoid that which they are fearful of. So, for example, I had a good friend of mine is that he got this job offer, um, but he later found out that his office was in Chicago. His office was going to be on the 63rd floor. He didn't realize that. So he wanted not to take the offer to avoid having to get on the elevator to go to the 63rd floor. So I recommended we see a colleague of mine. So that was a phobia. If he was just fearful of heights, he would have gotten into the elevator, been uncomfortable from the first floor to the 63rd floor, but would have gotten out. And after work, he would have you know, done the reverse. But with a phobia, people avoid things. And with regard to needle phobia, is if it's a vaccine or maybe it's an injection that you need for diabetes, if you avoid it, it has negative health consequences. So that's a phobia. So a fear is just some discomfort that you have, and you may experience it emotionally in your stomach. You might be jittery, but you've heard the expression, you feel the fear and do it anyway. For phobias, 
you feel the phobia and you don't do it anyway. So as we're unrolling the vaccines across the world, how much of a problem is this? It's um, unknown to some degree, but it's known. So if you talk to epidemiologists, they will tell you that in order to establish herd immunity in the globe, we need 70 to 85% of the global population. That's like 7.8 billion people. So we need 70, 85% of 7.8 billion people to get vaccinated. And if they get vaccinated, then we'll establish herd immunity. And then once that's established, then we can not go back to normal, but we can lead a life um, that resembles more pre-pandemic than what we've been going through. So if you have 3% of the world's population that is phobic, they would rather die than go get the vaccine. They're not going. And if you think about 30% of the world's population, then there are different degrees of fearfulness. Some will kind of do it anyway, and others, um, they may not. They may actually avoid it. My concern is the two-dose vaccine. So let's imagine that on a scale from zero to 10, you are moderately fearful, but you get yourself together and you go get the vaccine, but you have a bad experience during the first shot. So now your fear moved from a five to a seven. So at a seven, you might avoid it. So although you got the first dose, you can get the second dose. So that could compromise the effectiveness. With the vaccine, it's serious because if we don't reach that level, not only will that individual not be protected, but others may not be protected. So that's what's unique about pandemics. Put it to me in terms of the population of the United States. You spoke to me about this when we spoke earlier on the phone, and I I think that really brings it home when you talk about it in millions of people. Okay, yes. So the United States population is about 320 million. So if you think about 30% of that, then that's about 108 million people have a needle fear. Um, And the fear can range from low intensity to high intensity. And then if you look at the um, 3%, That's about 9 million people who would literally rather die than get a needle. And these are individuals who may ideologically be okay with it, may be okay with the vaccine from a religious and spiritual point of view, but it's just that they have extreme fear or phobia that prevents them from actually getting the vaccine. So it's something that um, the numbers are too big to ignore especially when you put on top of that tens of millions of people for political reasons, religious reasons, ideological reasons, say that they're not going to get the vaccine. Let's talk about the book, uh, Conquer Needle Phobia. You wrote this because you felt there was a strong need for it. It offers practical advice for really anyone who's feeling afraid, but also for educators and therapists and healthcare workers. Why did you feel that this was important to get this book out now? Um, let, me, let me tell you a story about that. So I used to work at Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine in New Orleans. And then part of what we did is we would do work in sub-Saharan Africa as part of the work that we would do. And I got involved in, as a psychologist, I'm kind of working on immunization campaigns. And also in the city of New Orleans, I got involved in pediatric dental care in terms of helping dentists and little children and their parents um, make sure that the kids didn't have dental, dental phobias and dental anxieties, particularly around needles. 
So those seeds were planted about 15, 20 years ago. A colleague of mine, who's now at the CDC, we were together at, at Tulane, he called me up out the blue and said, hey, Marty, we still do anything with needle phobias? And I said, I haven't done much with it. Occasionally, I'll see some patients with needle phobias, but not much. But I had been thinking about it because in early December of 2020, there was a short period of time where the press was picking up stories on needle phobias. It was hot for like two days and it disappeared. So he called me in late December. So he said he had reached out to some colleagues and asked them, would they be interested in doing something on needle phobia for the masses? And people said they weren't interested because they didn't have the public health orientation. So I was sat and reflected and said, oh, I got a lot going on in 2021. There's a couple other projects I got to finish up. But I said, no, I've got to do this because some, you know, evidence-based information that's accessible has to get out to not just individuals, but also to educators and practitioners so that there's some tools. Because after I spoke with him, I went, you know, to Amazon and I looked on Amazon, you know, needle phobias, needle fears. And I was expecting that there could be at least 50, 60 books. And to my surprise, there were fewer than 10. So a lot of hypnotherapy tapes, a few books. And I kind of reviewed the books and I said, there's a gap here. And I said, either they're a little bit too kind of scientific and jargony, or they're a little bit to the opinions of one or two people. Something has to be in the middle. So it was because of all of that that I cleared the deck as much as possible to really focus on this. Because for me, it's... um. My hope is it will help individuals, not only help individuals, is that hopefully this will help us get to herd immunity such that we all can kind of live, if you will, kind of freer lives. And the other piece is this. This will, unfortunately, this is probably not going to be the last pandemic. So if someone is able to get over their phobia now, and God forbid there's another one, you know, 10 years from now, then they'll be able to get another needle. Now you yourself had needle fears as a child. How did this affect your life? It affected it tremendously. Yep. So when I was about nine, 10, um, I had some dental problems. So, you know, went to the dentist and my father was the one that took me to the dentist. And in terms of he's, he's kind of pretty much, he's no, if you will. So it's, if you feel pain, you're supposed to feel pain, just kind of, you know, buck it up, suck it up. Um, don't complain, just you know, see your way through it. And the dentist, um, he wasn't the same way, but he was a little bit intolerant of me experiencing any pain. And the procedures were very long. I developed a fear of needles, and I also developed a fear of the dentist as a result of that. So that's something that um, I'm kind of still working on. I can go to the dentist, and you know, I can get an injection, and I can get scaling, and I can get extractions but probably on a scale from zero to 10, um, I'm not at a two or three. I'm probably about a four or five. So many of the techniques in the book, um, I actually use, yep, you know, one or two days before I go to the dentist. And there are techniques that I have used, um, you know, throughout my life. So it's, so for, on some level, this book is, is personal too. Tell me um, about some of the techniques in the book, because you cover quite a few different angles and people can really take charge of their own experience with this, which is the part of the book that I really love. Um, tell me about some of the, the techniques that people can use if they're feeling afraid or, or absolutely phobic 
of getting a needle? I mean, some of the techniques are, I want, first, I wanted to provide a range of techniques so that people could have something that worked for them because every technique's not going to work for everybody. But really, the, the first one is um, really to have some compassion towards yourself. So if indeed maybe your fear is higher than what you think it should be, and maybe your fear is higher than others, then try not to you know, ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Am I going crazy? So don't judge and evaluate yourself. Because if you really think about it is, if you're going to get a sharp object injected into your body, that, that triggers, yep, fear, just, just naturally for most people. But it's the range of fear. So it really begins with some self-acceptance. The second piece, too, is once you accept that, then what are some techniques? And I'll go over a couple of them in order to make it better. So really, the goal of the book is to make it tolerable. So the goal is not for you to like it or love it. That's almost unrealistic, but to make it tolerable so you don't avoid. So the gold standard when you are working with people that have phobias is called exposure therapy. So there's a whole chapter on exposure therapy. So what it would be is this is I show like a picture of a needle and it's kind of a cartoon image. So for some people that really have a phobia, they can't look at that image. So with exposure therapy, what you do is you look at the image longer and longer and longer, and it could be an hour, it could be two hours, until your fear is reduced. So maybe you start off looking at this image at nine, and after you're exposed to it, maybe for a couple hours, now it's at five. And maybe you're exposed a little bit, now it's at two. And then you move them up to the next level. So maybe it's not a cartoon needle, but maybe it's a photograph of an actual needle. And maybe they're back at a seven and then they look at it, look at it, look at it. And then eventually it will come down. So it's kind of feel the fear and do it anyway. That's exposure. And then when you're actually working with clients in real life, then you'd actually have an actual needle and they would touch the needle. Um, But you can't do that in a book and you can't do that on a website. The other technique, which is unique, to needle phobias is called ATT, which is applied tension technique. And it's people that may know about progressive muscle relaxation, where you tighten one part of your body and you hold it, and then you let go. And then you tighten another part of your body and you hold it, and then you let go. So you do that first with your lower limbs, and then kind of your buttocks, and then your trunk, and then your chest, and then your arms. And what you're seeking to do is is to bring blood to the center of your body. So what that does is for some people that have needle phobia, they're prone to feel lightheaded, dizzy, and faint. So if you have the pooling of the blood in the core, it prevents that. What it also does is it relaxes you because it's like progressive muscle relaxation, and it also distracts you. So another technique is to look at internal and external distractions. So the external distractions could be maybe you're listening to music. Maybe you're watching something on a video. Maybe you have like a little card with a confidence statement or an affirmation. Maybe you're looking out the window. So those are external distractions. Or there could be internal distractions. So maybe you're imagining something in your mind. Maybe you're listening to a song in your mind. Or maybe you're telling yourself a statement like, I've got this or this is going to be okay. So I walk through a number of different ways that people can distract themselves. 
So for me, for example, so if I'm in the dental chair, I will hold one hand with the other and I'll squeeze it. And when I'm, when I'm squeezing it, it is a distraction. And it focuses me on the squeezing of my hand rather than what's happening in my mouth. And that, and that works for me. So those are some of the, um, the techniques. Tell me a bit about the self-hypnosis that you can do. I found this really interesting. I didn't even know it was possible to do self-hypnosis. It is. In fact, all of us do self-hypnosis all the time without realizing it. So let me give, give you an example. So let's say you're driving and you're driving home you know, from work or driving home from the grocery store as you normally do on a familiar route. And then you pass by the street you're supposed to turn on. And you weren't even aware that you passed by that street until maybe you go a block further. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, I miss I missed the corner. How could I do that? You were in a state of hypnosis. Or if you have kids or if you watch children watching television, maybe the child is anywhere between five and 11 years old. You can literally walk past them, stand there for a little bit. They'll kind of move their head a little bit or you can call their name and they actually don't hear you. So they're not always ignoring you. They don't hear you because they are super focused. So when you think about hypnosis, you have focused attention. So we do this naturally, but you can also control it as well with regard to self-hypnosis. So what it is, is it's drawing your attention on purpose to a particular object of your attention, could be internal or external. And then when you do that, you move into a normal, natural, different state of consciousness. And when you're in this normal, natural, different state of consciousness, then you're more receptive to positive self-talk. And you also are less likely to be upset by external factors because you're so focused inward. So that's really what self-hypnosis is. But what I try to do in the book is um, give people instructions on how to do this in a deliberate, purposeful way, recognizing that they do it all the time. If you daydream, then technically you're in a state of hypnosis. Now, my nine-year-old is really afraid of spiders and bugs. And, and she was actually asking me the other day what she could do about it. Is there something she could do about it to fix the problem? And it really brought to mind a lot of the tactics that you share in the book. And, and I think this is information that really could work on any fears and phobias. You're absolutely right. All the techniques are applicable to any type of fears and phobias, The only exception is the ATT because needle phobias are unique in terms of the lightheadedness, dizziness, and fainting. So the the applied tension technique has to be there. However, like if you look at your nine-year-old who's afraid of spiders, that technique would still work because it's similar to progressive muscle relaxation. So let me talk about your nine-year-old. So if you were to use exposure therapy, what you would do is you could go to the internet (laughs) And then you could, you know, get images of cartoon spiders. So maybe colorful, friendly with a smile. And then maybe you show your nine-year-old that and maybe give them like cards. So maybe they, I would do five. So maybe, you know, zero is no fear. Five is completely freaked out. So little cards and they just show you what the card is. And then you have, well, take another look at it. And then they take a look at it. Where are you now? I want you to think of something funny or think of something that you like to eat, 
So you, what you want to try to do is pair something desirable with that which they fear. So you keep exposing them. And then eventually what happens is there's the association between that which is desirable and that which was feared. So exposure takes a little bit of time. And then they're at the point of maybe they're the zero with the cartoon spider. So now you just do maybe a, a medical illustration spider. So it looks more realistic, see where they are with that. And if they're you know close to two or one, then you actually show a photograph of a you know, 3D real spider. It's a photograph, see where they are with that. Then you move them up to a video. And then you take them to the pet store and then take a look at them in the case. And then I wouldn't necessarily have the spider on them unless you live in an environment where there's a higher probability that a spider may actually land on them. If that's the case, then you would do that. Does that make sense? Or Absolutely. Not? I'm going to, I'm going to try this with her and I'm going to report. It takes that. time. You have <laughs> she's, to be patient. Ironically, she's fine with needles, but spiders. Oh, wow, yeah. I'm going to talk about sleep because this is another big area of expertise for you and people are not getting enough, especially during a pandemic. What is the connection between sleep and needle fears? December was kind of the, um, the month of converging forces. So I said in early December, I saw these articles pop up about needle phobias for like two or three days, and then they disappear from the news cycle. My you know, former colleague called me up and said, hey, Marty, still doing work on needle phobias. And also at that time, I had two patients who were not able to sleep, not able to fall asleep and stay asleep because they had vaccine scheduled. For January, you know, when it began to came out, and these were healthcare professionals. So that's the relationship. So if you're scheduled to have, let's say, a vaccine or a biopsy or a dental appointment, um, what's today? Let's say tomorrow. So you're probably not going to sleep well tonight. Why? Because anxiety puts you in a state of hypervigilance. And that's a good thing. Yep. Because when you're anxious, you're anticipating something bad. So your body says, you've got to be on alert and you've got to be on alert, not just during your waking hours, you've got to be on alert 24 hours a day so you can you know, catch the bad thing before it happens to you. So what I do with patients is I set the expectation is it's probably going to be normal, yeah, that you're not going to be able to sleep as well in three ways. So maybe it takes longer to fall asleep. Maybe you get up more during the night than what you normally do, or maybe you wake up earlier than what you would like to. So I try to normalize that. And then in most cases, I let them know is just, you know, imagine that you have you know, got the vaccine, you got the shot, you went through the biopsy with the biopsy needle, and you know, everything was good. How will you feel? And usually people will say, feel a sense of relief, maybe a sense of pride, feel good. And then I'll ask the question is, I'm just curious, how do you think you may sleep tonight? You know, metaphors such as like a baby, fine. So I also want to make sure that project them after the particular thing that they fear, because what that does is sets up a reward, like an internal reward, that it's worth it. And that's a way to also maybe drive a little bit of motivation. What is stopping people right now from, from sleeping? What are the biggest issues people are facing around not being able to sleep? This is interesting. So with regard to the pandemic and sleep, 
it's kind of gone through some kind of movements, if you will. So initially what was happening is people were, were not sleeping enough in terms of hours. So now some relatively recent research says that some people are sleeping too much, which is called hypersomnolence. Some people are sleeping too little, and then some people are sleeping just right. So the sleeping too much in general for adults between the ages of 25 and 65, if it's over 10 hours, then that's kind of being in the too much category. And then the too little is if it's under six hours. So not, you know, one or two nights a week, but consistently for about three months, that's the too little because both of those have some negative health consequences. So what's happening with people's sleep is, um, People are finding in two ways. One is they have more time to sleep. Because let's imagine you worked eight hours a day and you had a four-hour commute. That's 12 hours right there. And then you have other life activities and responsibilities you have to do. So the only place that people could cut back was on sleep. So now with people, depending upon your role, with some people not commuting is they actually have more time to sleep. Whereas for others, what they're worried about is if you think about kind of the pandemic, so they're worried about infections. They're also worried about income, maybe job security, retirement security. If they are frontline worker, they're worried about being exposed. If they have children or grandchildren, they're worried about their education, how they're coping. If they have a partner, they're worried about their partner. So it's more than just the pandemic. It's almost every aspect and domain of our life. There's some uncertainty there's some ambiguity, there's some volatility, which is why I think it's critical that um, people have a dial down or wind down ritual before they get in the bed and try to go to sleep. Now, you talk about, in some of your work, you talk about chronotypes. You know, your chronotype impacts your productivity. And I know you work with teams in optimizing productivity and sleep. Can you tell me a little about that? Yeah, this is uh, kind of fascinating work kind of happened accidentally. So in working with some uh, colleagues on some research projects is I'm an early morning person. So this morning I was up at five o'clock, jump out the bed, five o'clock in the morning, ready to go. But I also typically I'm asleep about 930 at night. So a couple of my colleagues that I work with, they're night owls. So they're typically, if there's no work commitments, they wouldn't get up until after like 12 noon because they're night owls, but they're going to sleep two or three o'clock in the morning. So we'd always have this kind of little tension about when we would schedule times to meet. And I would say, hey, let's start at seven. <laughs> I say, Marty, are you kidding me? I just got in the bed at three o'clock. Let's start at like two o'clock or why don't we do it seven o'clock at night? I'm like, I can't do seven o'clock at night. I'll be sleeping if you do seven o'clock at night. So then that led me on the journey to find out what's going on. And then there's something that's called a clock gene. So all of us have a clock gene, and the scientists that discovered this won a Nobel Prize, I think it was like four or five years ago. So your chronotype and my chronotype are genetically determined, just like my eye color. So my eyes are hazel. It will always be hazel because it's driven by my genes. I'm early morning. I will always be early morning because it's driven by my genes. I can modify that. I can cope with that, but I can't change that. So let's imagine for you is you have a team of five people and you're the only early morning person. So they say, well, let's schedule all the very important meetings later in the day. But it may be at a point in time where your productivity has fallen off. 
So what I do is I would give you a chronotype assessment, give the others a chronotype assessment, and then I would fuse together all the chronotype assessments and say, okay, for analytical work, I suggest you do it this point in time. For decision-making work, I suggest you do it this point in time. For insignificant catch-up FYI meetings, do it this point in time. Critical meetings, do it at this point in time. So that way people know when they're at their biological best individually and also to the group knows when the group is at their biological best. So that's the way you drive both individual and group performance. And it actually saves time, decreases frustration and decreases stress. What do you tell people who who work shifts and don't really have much choice in the matter and are maybe not uh, night night people? If I were like, you know, king for a day, um, that would probably be my first ruling. No more shift work. Shift work is detrimental to people's well-being, particularly if they don't have a good seven days to accommodate. And the reason why that's the case is, think about it, if you fly east to west or west to east and you go through time zones, so it typically takes one day per hour. So if you think about shift work, sometimes people are having to change 12 hours in a day, but biologically, they actually need 11 days to do it. So for those that have it, what I suggest to them is try to replicate Say, for example, you get home at seven o'clock in the morning and that's now your time to go to sleep. Get blackout um, shades, you know, ear earmuffs. Try to replicate night as much as possible. So you have to do that the way you set up your bedroom environment. You have to negotiate with family and friends and let them know not to bother you. And then so that way you at least you make sure you're not sleep deprived. So you want them to get the hours of sleep, seven to nine is what's recommended, hours of sleep first, and then you want to focus on the quality. And you also, if possible, try to get them to negotiate with their employers to kind of ease the transition from one shift to another shift, although that's not always possible. And if people are really struggling with it, and maybe their employer is not sensitive to it, a lot of cases because they don't know, um, in other cases, they don't care, then Sometimes I may refer them or I may work with them on, well, let's look at, you know, maybe you're going to remain a nurse or you're going to remain, you know, a factory worker, but can we maybe look at a role where you have a more stable, predictable schedule, just one schedule and not a shift schedule? So sometimes you have to do that. You have to get them out that environment if it's impacting them. Tell me about your sleep. What, What do you do to get a good night's sleep? I'm pretty consistent. In general, I am. I tend to get sleepy because, again, it's clock gene. Uh, I tend to get sleepy uh, between uh, like 9 and 10 o'clock, predictably. I'm sleepy. Between 9 and 10 in the evening. Yep, 9 and 10 in the evening, yes. I wind down by reading stuff that's boring. So that's how I wind down. So I get something that's boring and I read that. And just with a, um, and I read it on paper. I don't read it on a, on a device because the device emits blue light. And when the blue light is hitting, hitting my eyes, it, it suppresses melatonin. So darkness activates melatonin, and then melatonin initiates sleepiness. So I make sure it's just a kind of a, a lamp light. So I usually do that about eh, 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And then 
as I'm winding down, um, yeah, I just feel a sense of relaxation, a sense of peace. And if I have like a worry or concern, I may jot it down and say I can address that um, in the morning. And then I just, you know, fall asleep anywhere between 10 and 1030 and um, get up once during the uh, night. You have to use the restroom and, you know, come back to bed. And then I can usually fall asleep probably within five minutes. But if there are some occasions, like I have a heavy workload the next day, or maybe I'm concerned about something, I may be up 20, 30 minutes, then I get out of bed. So I get out of the bed, get out of the bedroom, go downstairs, low lit lamp, and just kind of just, you know, relax and um, try not to get myself worked up with this kind of self-talk. Oh my God, I got to get up at seven o'clock. I'm up right now and it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be tired. So I try to turn off all that um, catastrophizing talk because I know if that catastrophizing talk happens, I know I'm going to well. get aroused and I'm going to be more awake, not less awake. And then I typically get up at um, anywhere between five and six. It's consistent. Well, this is, I'll frame it this way. I listen to my body. And then I basically comply, if you will, with my body because it's driven by my clock gene and it works for me. But a lot of people don't. They don't listen to their body. They try to overrule it. And you can't overrule it, you know, with medications. You can overrule it temporarily, but you're hard pressed to overrule it permanently. What is making you feel hopeful and optimistic right now? I, I always like to ask people this. These are difficult times. You work with patients who are experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety. What's making you feel hopeful and optimistic? No, I think um, there are a couple things. Yep. So one is kind of more global. And I think on the global level, it's just the level of interconnectedness that I think people from different parts of the world are actually experiencing. Is one small example is two competitive pharmaceutical companies, Merck and Pfizer. So they have said, you know what? We're going to cooperate with regard to the production of vaccine. So, I mean, it's not a big issue, but it's illustrative. I think the other piece is, I think this pandemic in some way has humbled us as humans um, and kind of let us know is that, you know, we're not always in charge, um, that there are other life forces that are in charge. And that's okay, Um, because I think it's brought out for many people a sense of gentleness, a sense of humility, as I said before, and a sense of kindness. Now, that's not universally true, but I because the news picks up typically opposite stories. But I've definitely found that The, the other piece that makes me hopeful is that when we all come through this particular tragic time, so that we're experiencing tragedies in different ways, is I think we will take ourselves less for granted. We will take others less for granted. Savoring little moments in life and recognizing the preciousness of our relationships. That's, that's That's what makes me hopeful. Absolutely. I really love this book because of that one thing that you mentioned earlier, that it's okay to feel anxious. It's okay not to feel okay. I think that Mm -hmm. is probably the most profound message uh, in the book and also the one that we all need to hear right now. 
Everybody mm -hmm. is struggling and, you know, we all have to find compassion um, in ourselves, really. Yes, we do. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.